Hello and welcome to another episode of Have You Got That Right, the podcast of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. I'm your host, Maria Smith, manager of the Caston Centre. And I'm Tanya Penovich, Deputy Director of the Caston Centre. And I'm Maria O'Sullivan, Deputy Director of the Centre. Today we're going to perform uh, an act of cognitive dissonance that's quite common for those of us working in human rights. We're going to mourn the death and de- of decency and humanity in government asylum policy. And we're also going to turn around and celebrate what was undeniably a great day for marriage equality in Australia yesterday. So we are uh, recording this episode on Thursday, the 16th of November, the day after the announcement of the results of uh, what was a historic um, marriage equality survey. Um, Normally we'd start with our flagship topic, which today is refugees, um, and push the news to the end. But considering the uh, momentous nature of yesterday's result, we're going to um, talk about um, marriage equality up front before we um, move on to asylum seekers and then finish off with our human rights hero and villain of the week and did you see that? So uh, it was a great day um, that came at the end of a pretty bruising battle for equality in this country not just after over the past few months but over you know more than a decade uh, since um, the Howard government amended the Marriage Act in 2004 to explicitly rule out same-sex marriage. Now, we recently recorded a whole podcast on marriage equality, which is episode seven, a couple back in your feed, where we answer a lot of the questions about the process. So I thought today um, we'd just focus on a couple of things. One, just the the emotion of yesterday and the other, um, the battle that still lies ahead uh, in getting uh, the legislation through Parliament. So um, to start off with, um, Maria, uh, your first time here uh, in the podcast. Yes. Um, What were your thoughts on the result yesterday? Well, I was absolutely delighted and it was really heartwarming to see all that footage, especially Penny Wong being very emotional um, and she's been a great supporter and Magda Zubancy is also as... um, I was delighted to see her and David Ma so happy at the celebrations in Sydney. But I would like to note that the uh, the voter turnout it wasn't really a vote, of course, it was a survey. But the the turnout of young people was particularly heartwarming. Um, and if you look at the statistics, the the turnout of those sort of aged between eighteen and twenty five was very strong. And so that was another takeaway message. I think that mm. we might. Some people might argue that young people are apathetic, and I have seen commentary uh, in that vein, but I think this really disproves that assumption. Mm. Well, I'm just so relieved that the whole exercise is finally over, at least insofar as the, the postal survey is concerned, and it is just such a relief that the result was a resounding yes. Of course, the whole exercise was unnecessary and stressful and damaging and and so costly on a number of levels. But the LGBTIQ community has stood up to homophobia and bigotry. And the triumph of of the yes vote is a victory for equality and for love and a huge cause for celebration. So, So the job now is to ensure that the legislation, which gives effect to the yes vote, does not perpetuate the intolerance and bigotry which have been rejected by the Australian voting public. Um, it, uh, obviously, uh, yesterday was really quite emotional and one thing that was uh, that caught my attention was this morning I got to the train station and there was a, 
a little poster that someone had put up on the wall and it was from a person who lived in the neighbourhood and I tweeted it out on my um, Twitter account this morning, Marius Smith. Um, she's, it was a whole long one, so you can go on there if you want to see it. But it, basically she said um, to, to, to dear neighbours, you open your heart and embrace the LGBTIQ community in the most moving and compassionate way. I cannot put into words the appreciation and thanks I have for the source of strength to us all. Mm. So, I just, you know, um, and we talked about a little bit back in episode seven, just the, um, how very difficult it was for um, LGBTQI people, you know, people we know who, you know, felt really judged, mm. um, you know, and, and I think it was so hard for them. And that was just a real, I thought, emotional outpouring from someone who was really thankful that, you know, there were a lot of people in her community who mm. weren't judging her mm. and just were supportive of her when they could have just not sort of cared either way, of mm. course. I mean, it must be at least uplifting to think that people care enough to put up posters and call, you know, do calling banks. We had a session here where students came in and made calls. You know, I, I imagine that at least that would be a real positive, not just that people support it, but that it actually meant something to them to go out and do more than just vote. Yeah, and David Maas um, wrote a, a commentary yesterday, I believe, for the Fairfax Papers, but he said something like, I've fallen in love with my country mm. over again. And I thought that was very telling. That's not only about being judged as a person, but feeling that disconnect with your community and your country. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so, the, of course, marriage equality did not become legal yesterday. Uh, so as we know, it was a, it was a non-binding survey um, and Parliament still has to go and do its job, which is pass a law permitting marriage equality. Um, so uh, we're in a slightly difficult position here that as we're recording, um, Parliament is beginning the process of discussing a private member's bill from Senator Dean Smith, a Liberal Party senator who... Um, has introduced what is sort of seen as a bit of a compromise bill that was already um, hashed out in advance with members of the Yes campaign, um, but taking into account um, sort of religious sensibilities. So uh, reverses the stipulation that the Howard government put in in 2004 that marriage be between a man and a woman and it allows marriage to be between any two people. It uh, extends a little bit, I think, extends protections for religious um, organisations uh, on the basis of, the, you know, um, an ex exemption to discrimination law. So the Marriage Act of 1961 allows religious ministers not to um, uh, not to preside over a marriage that's against their religious beliefs. Um, so you could have really, I think, put an argument that all we need to do is amend the clause, clause saying that marriage is between a man and a woman and the rest of it took care of, it, of itself. But it's gone a fair bit beyond that and there's a few things in there that some people are a little bit concerned about. Um, the, the, the main one is that um, it, it extends the... So, again, in this bill, a religious marriage celebrant can refuse to um, solemnise a marriage and I think everyone agrees that should be the case. Then it goes a little bit a step further and says a body established for religious purposes may refuse to make a facility available or to provide goods or services for the purposes of the solemnisation of a marriage or for purposes reasonably incidental to the solemnisation of a marriage. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a mashup of what's in the Sex Discrimination Act, um, where there's an exemption for religious bodies using the same wording, and there's a, there's another section twenty two that 
relates to goods and services. So the, the argument is it's not really extending the exemptions that are in the Sex Discrimination Act, um, but they've put them in here again. It becomes a bit of an interpretive issue, and it is quite broadly mm. written, so that's of some concern. But it doesn't go certainly as far as the bill that was proposed by um, James Patterson, James Patterson mm. uh, that would have exempted pretty much everyone. Uh, and Maria, I think you were having a look at that yesterday. Oh, briefly, I know that there's been some commentary about the, the so-called homophobic bakers, which I, I don't really <laughs> know any exist, actually. But um, that, that was a problem with that bill, I think, that it was so broad-ranging that it would, in, in effect, override those anti-discrimination laws that were put in place in 2013. So that's the problem that um, secular organisations or, or the bakers um, cannot refuse to give a service to a gay person or a gay couple. Mm. Mm. Um, and, yeah, this is taking things way beyond where they are now. In fact, it would be opening up a new front of discrimination, allowing people to discriminate in a way that they're not able to at, a moment, at the moment yes, in indeed. the kind of... Uh, in the name of religious freedom. Mm. Mm. And uh, I have an issue with the categorisation of this as conscientious objection. If... We had, uh, you know, there was a war, God forbid, um, with North Korea, and we had compulsory um, military service, mm. and I wanted to conscientiously object because of my religious beliefs, or some religions don't allow for blood transfusion. Mm. That is an entirely different matter to saying I am allowed to discriminate against someone because of my religious beliefs. If I mm. want to object to something um, like compulsory military uh, attendance, then um, I'm not actually discriminating against anyone. It's your own view. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the situation, of course, could, could become one where, well, if, if, if the majority of bakers were opposed to marriage equality, then you have trouble getting a cake. Mm. But of course, to take it back to the individual situation, it's just like, if you want a cake, someone should sell you a cake or, or they mm. shouldn't be in the business of selling cakes. Mm. Indeed. When I think about conscientious objection, I think about the Victorian abortion law reform, which requires doctors who have a conscientious objection to abortion to refer women to a doctor who, who doesn't have that objection. That, that's been controversial, um, but it, it obviously is a question of, of access to a fundamental right, mm. access to a health service. I think that, that the James Patterson bill, as drafted, is a licence for hatred, um, unprecedented discrimination, mm. and, and really goes against the, the whole premise of the postal survey. Mm. And the notion, too, that you carve out a, an exemption for bakers to not bake a, a wedding cake for a gay couple, but they'd still have to bake other cakes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just laughable, isn't it? It is. It's just, and uh, I've, something I've been coming back to continually throughout this debate was an, another article that David Ma wrote a while back where he said, where he, where he said, the, the no vote's going to lose. They know they're going to lose. But the point is they want to make it hard. They want to say to you, every time you want to make a change, every time you want to bring more equality to society, it's going to be bloody hard and you shouldn't bother because we'll fight it every step mm. of the way. And it's like so now they've lost and they're just going to carve out where they can. They're just going to continue to make this as difficult as possible. And mm. if they can carve out new ways for people really to impose their religious mm. views on other people, because that's really what this amounts to, then they're going to mm. do that. 
Mm. And I, this conscientious objection, I'd never heard of the term outside of you know military service mm. <laughs> until a few days ago. And, and George Brander said in a doorstop this morning that he's going to um, propose an amendment for a cor- uh, for a conscientious objection, but but just for civil marriage celebrants. Right. Um, again, to me, if you decide that you're going to marry people, mm. y- you don't get to to choose who not to when you're not a, when you're not a, a religious minister. I mean, mm. it's no different to the baker. If you if if it's so confronting to you that the two people who come and ask to be married by you are going to be repugnant to you, you know, don't get into the business. Mm. Mm. I agree. Mm. Mm. I agree too. <laughs> We're all in agreement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they want this done before Christmas. So it's been uh, a bit a bit odd. Normally, bills start in the House of Representatives and move to the Senate. This bill is not a government bill. It's what's known as a private member's bill. So um, just one member of parliament introduces it. Mm. That person, Dean Smith, happens to be a senator. So the debate is starting in the Senate um, for this bill and then we'll move to the House of Reps. And uh, there are going to be all sorts of amendments proposed. So everything's a little bit fluid at the moment. Mm. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, definitely uh, keep uh, up with our uh, social media for um, updates on what's happening with that bill over the coming days and weeks. Mm. So now it's on to an issue that uh, had captivated the nation last week um, when the government um, in Papua New Guinea turned off all electricity and water and stopped providing food and effectively closed down the Manus Island Processing Centre where um, uh, asylum seekers and refugees have been held as part of uh, the Australian government's offshore processing system over the past um, the past several years. Um, the refugees are currently living in squalid conditions. They're too scared to leave the camp. Um, and you'd be excused for asking, how have we got to a point where such an inhumane, uncaring, and uh, I, I'd even say petty um, policy has come to pass? So we want to kind of have a look at how we got here. Um, so Tanya, really briefly to start off, who are these people and how did they end up on Manus Island? Well, the, the 600 men currently at Manus have been held at the behest of the Australian government. They are asylum seekers who were um, detained while trying to reach Australia and transferred to Manus Island for processing. All of the detainees are men. So single women and families have been held at the other regional processing centre operated at Australia's behest, which is the one at Nauru. So our government has tried to distance itself from what's going on at Manus Island at the moment, but the arrangements which have led to this human rights disaster have been put in place and paid for by Australia. Um, This is a policy that's been in development for a long time, starting with when we decided that we needed to lock um, asylum seekers up upon arrival, which we didn't always do, and then going through several iterations. Can you can you just quickly chart the history of, of offshore processing and mandatory detention in Australia? So with offshore processing, that started with the Pacific Solution, which was introduced by the Howard government after the Tampa standoff in 2001. Uh, in order to make good John Howard's uh, assertion that we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. So, that still makes me shudder all these yes, things about refugees on the boat. I mean, it's a, a, sorry to interrupt, but it's such a, 
it just I think it was such a great summary of the era and the attitude that's now become internalised as part of Australian politics outside of the Greens and the odd independent. That's right. That's right. How little's changed. Yeah. So, so the Howard government basically wanted to divest itself of the burdens of, of refugee processing and protection. It, it wanted to simply pick and choose uh, resettlement places under the humanitarian program, but divest itself of the burdens of, of dealing with spontaneous arrivals. So uh, the plan was to have refugees processed in Nauru and Papua New Guinea and resettled anywhere but Australia. So that didn't work out so well. Um, about two-thirds of the the asylum seekers who arrived at, at the time of the Pacific Solution wound up being resettled in Australia. That is, those ones who were found to be refugees. Also, it was a disaster for human rights. Now, the Pacific Solution was uh, abandoned by the, the first Rudd government in <laughs> 2007 um, as, as a policy that, that punished refugees for domestic political purposes. But offshore processing was never really off the table. So the Rudd government continued to process refugees in the remote Australian territory of Christmas Island. And it wasn't long before Australia started looking to other countries again. So shortly after becoming Prime Minister, Julia Gillard looked to East Timor as a suitable place for refugee processing. And when negotiations with East Timor failed, basically East Timor took the view that they had other issues to deal with than Australia's asylum seekers. An didn't arrangement was made. Didn't um, didn't she announce it to the Australian people before she'd called East Timor? Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. That's, how, yeah. that's how much we think of our regional neighbours. Yes, it was. Um, it, it was. I mean, East East Timor really are to be admired. For standing mm. up to Australia in that context, they, they've gone mm. good at it, really. When they you have, think they of have. The Timor Gap, and indeed, well, they've realised that that no one else is going to look after them. Mm. And they've got to look after themselves, mm. and all power to them in that regard. Yeah. So uh, when they told us to to go away, uh, an arrangement was made with Malaysia, and, and this was a cooperative transfer arrangement, which initially was to see eight hundred irregular maritime arrivals transferred to Malaysia in exchange for Australia resettling 4,000 refugees currently living in Malaysia. So the whole design of it was to say, we will resettle people from outside Australia, but we will not take these spontaneous arrivals who choose to come to our shores. Now that arrangement was um, with, with Malaysia was struck down by our High Court and, and after maintaining an approach that, that we will process asylum seekers anywhere but Nauru or Papua New Guinea, the Gillard government recommenced the processing of asylum seekers in Nauru and Papua New Guinea in late 2012. And um, Tanya, I think again on the basis that none of them were ever going to see Australia. Yes. Yeah. yes. That was but the no advantage principle yes, from yes. the um, so-called expert panel report in 2012. Yeah. So, so the expert panel, which which was designed to to deal with um, preventing deaths at sea, 
uh, recommended the recommencement of offshore processing as a short-term circuit break. It was never supposed to be the solution. So the solution was the much more difficult uh, goal of regional cooperation, mm. um, we know, which requires political will and um, not short-term um, political brinkmanship. So on this point, then, they end up in um, PNG and Nauru again, they're not coming here. That policy is made more clear than when the um, new Abbott government comes in. Mm. Um, I um, wonder if we can step back now and look at this from a human rights point of view. People often say there's a you know th- these people have a right to asylum. Um, Maria, isn't that the case? If they arrive here in Australia or or in Australian territorial waters, don't they have a right? That, that we need to respect to, um, to to receive asylum? There is a right to seek asylum under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Some say that that is not a binding treaty, is not a treaty as such as a declaration, but still I think it is very influential. So that's the overriding principle. However, Australia would argue that because of state sovereignty, we can control our borders and those who uh, come in on a boat are classed as unlawful non-citizens. So they are not citizens of Australia and they are unlawful arrivals. As such, um, Australia views them as not being able to access the normal protections that a refugee coming in on a plane can get. As and, a result, um, yeah. Um, on with the, so the, the, they do have this right to seek asylum. Let's assume the UDH, the University Declaration sometimes is seen as what's known as customary law, but um, is it right that there's not a um, corresponding obligation on Australia to grant asylum as far as international law is concerned? The UN uh, High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, would argue that Australia has an obligation to process asylum seekers, uh, whether they come in via a boat or whether they come in on a plane. Uh, The problem is, as, as you would know, Australia has somewhat of, I guess, a duplicity in relation to international law in that we want to become part of the International Human Rights Committee, but um, in terms of our our seat on on the UN, Human Rights Council... It's happened. Yes. Yeah. But um, we... When I say we, the the legal community, the the courts and the government in Australia take the view that domestic law will trump international law. So the Migration Act, which is passed by Parliament, trumps international law. And UNHCR views have, particularly in recent years, not been taken with the level of seriousness that should be accorded them. Okay. So... Um, they end up on Manus Island and um, the centre's closed uh, um, because of refugees now have asylum in PMG. Um, isn't that the end of it? Um, we often talk about um, durable solutions. Um, can you tell us a bit about durable solutions and, and whether or not, in fact, these people on Manus have received that because they've been recognised as refugees and are in PNG. Yes, so basically again the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR, has three planks to its its proposal. If you read any UNHCR document on refugees, the three things they talk about in terms of durable solutions are integration into the host state, so integration into Australia via granting someone permanent residency and then citizenship. 
Voluntary repatriation, which means that the um, usually failed asylum seeker, someone who's not held to be a refugee, can voluntarily repatriate in conditions that have to be safe and have a life of dignity. Um, So that's voluntary repatriation. That can be difficult, particularly when you're talking about asylum seekers from Afghanistan, Iraq and Iran. Mm. So that's a third plank. And then importantly, the third, sorry, that's the second plank. The third plank is resettlement. And this is where we get the problem with PNG and Nauru because... So, uh, so resettlement in a different country, what we call third country. Yes, in a, in a third country. So resettlement, this to me is one of the big problems with Manus and to some extent Nauru as well. So if we accept that they are processing centres and there's... I can talk about that a little bit later about the fact that processing took some time there was a lot of delay. So, okay, we've got these processing centres, but they're not actually processing centres. They're warehousing centres. That is, Mm -hmm. you are effectively saying, we have processed you and we took some time in doing it, but you've been found to be a refugee. There's a term called warehousing where you literally just keep a refugee, a recognised refugee in a country, but you don't give them any of the acquired rights that they would normally get under the Refugee Convention. And Australia, Nauru and PNG are all signatories to the Refugee Convention. And importantly, that does not just set out a definition of who is a refugee, a person who is at risk of persecution for a particular reason. It also says you get important things like work rights social security rights, the right to have your children uh, educated and so forth. Mm. So they're the sorts of things I think that are problematic in PNG and Nauru and also the fact that resettlement can't be forced. You cannot force someone to resettle in a place where they have fear, where they fear that they may be ill-treated. Can you talk about what's been happening in the last um, few weeks um, since the centre was closed? So on the 31st of October, the uh, Papua New Guinean government turned off all electricity and water and stopped providing food and effectively closed down the Manus Island Processing Centre. Since that time, the refugees have have remained in that facility, living in squalid conditions, and they've been too scared to to leave the camp. So they've been uh, collecting their own water, and there are reports that the local military have sabotaged the water supply by pouring rubbish and and oil into the water. Uh, We've been told that uh, new transit centres have been built to take the asylum seekers and that they are simply refusing to go. But there are mixed reports as to whether those transit centres are ready. And in any event, they are not believed to offer protection from the local community. So there's been a lot of hostility directed at the asylum seekers from the local community. And um, the the asylum seekers are fearful to go out at night and move around in the community, um, basically fearful of violent attacks. Um, And if you you look at it from the point of view of Morris Island, it's a very small community, um, a very tight-knit community, and 600 men have sort of been imposed upon them. Mm. Um, You can understand why the tensions are running high. Mm. And I'd like to note that the closure was actually ordered by the PNG Supreme Court in April last year. The PNG Supreme Court found that the treatment of the asylum seekers and refugees in the centre was unconstitutional 
You may not know, but PNG, the PNG Constitution has a very robust human rights protection um, regime that is quite closely modelled on the European Convention on Human Rights, which is actually very robust as well. Interestingly, the orders that were made in April 2016 by the PNG Supreme Court said that Australia did have responsibility for these refugees and recommended that Australia actually physically take them to Australia. So there's a bit of a a debate about um, how Australia should comply with those orders because the PNG Supreme Court orders are not directly enforceable in Australia. Indeed, earlier this year in a case of plaintiff S195, there was Australian litigation that was trying to link Australian constitutional and administrative arrangements um, because we actually obviously transfer people to PNG under Australian law, there was um, an attempt to link that to the PNG Supreme Court and that failed. So that's the whole problem with offshore processing. You are transferring people under Australian domestic law and then they become PNG's responsibility theoretically, but Australia still has international and domestic um, responsibility for them. And indeed, that was most recently recognised by the UN Human Rights Committee, a very important uh, human rights institution. And in its concluding observations on the 9th of November, it's explicitly said that Australia had legal responsibility for those refugees in PNG. Now, despite that, uh, Australia still, the Australian government still seeks to argue that the refugees are PNG's responsibility. Okay, so that's great. Um, really helps us then to answer this question. So Australia has responsibility for these um, refugees. Um, over the course of um, uh, offshore processing, so not just what's happening right now, but going back through the last you know, three to five years and then before that as well, um, what human rights issues have been raised by um, offshore processing? How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, uh, offshore processing has been seen to breach numerous human rights. Uh, some, Some of the obvious ones are the right to personal liberty, the right to humane treatment in detention, uh, the obligation in the Refugee Convention not to apply unnecessary restrictions on refugees' movements and not to impose penalties on account of illegal entry or presence of refugees. Uh, but, but also in this context, work rights, um, the prohibition on torture and other forms of cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. Um, significantly here, uh, the, the right to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. There is, there is a preponderance of medical evidence that, that immigration detention, particularly remote detention, offshore detention, has a deleterious impact on mental health. So quite a number of these men have severe mental health problems that have developed during their their time on Manus. And not just these men, um, but this is a legacy right through this this policy. Um, Patrick McGorry, who was Australian of the Year, referred to detention centres as incubators of mental illness. Mm. Um, this is not like locking some, locking someone up for five years where they know they're going to get out. They have mm. something to work towards. Uh, if you end up locked up for three or five years, not knowing what your future is, um, there's an incredible sense of despair leading to 
verifiable mental illness in just thousands of people who we've subjected to over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. So it was that, it's that indeterminacy of duration mm. um, as well as the punishing conditions that, that really undermine mental health. Mm. Yeah. And that's why UNHCR do um, consistently emphasise the need for a durable solution. Mm. But, but there's more. I mean, I'll just mention a couple. <laughs> I, I could go on for some time, but obviously work rights um, and, and also the, the right to food and housing, mm. which come within the scope of the right to uh, an adequate standard of living, uh, are really brought into play in, in what's occurring now. Yeah. Mm. The right to protection of family um, with respect to family reunion. I mean, yep. this, is, this is really a system which undermines a comprehensive range of human rights and and you know the idea that they, these are factories uh, for producing mental illness these these are dysfunctional environments of our creation that are designed to send a message last year we hosted a screening of chasing asylum the film that was made by eva orna and one part that really got to me was one of the people who'd worked there saying that um senator um hansen um hansen young sent up a load of toys for the kids and they gave them to the kids and they all got a toy and this woman was saying I watched this one girl she got a toy and she was so excited it was a teddy that she mm. rubbed it all over her body and she and and the, the person recounting this said I thought this is just amazing and then I thought this is not amazing it's a teddy bear mm. I mean this is the level mm. of deprivation that we have mm. imposed on these people that a child act, reacts with such mm. unbelievable joy at the sight of just one teddy bear. Mm. <laughs> it's heartbreaking. <clears throat> it mm. is. Um, okay, so let's talk about what should happen to these people. Um, where, where should they be going? Well, bring them here. They yeah. are Australia's mm. responsibility, mm. Uh, as Maria has eloquently pointed out. Yeah. Mm. But even if they're not coming here, the Australian government is throwing up roadblocks to getting them elsewhere that's safe, which is almost mm. more egregious, don't you think? Yeah, the refusal of New Zealand's offer yeah. is, um, you know, once more um, a, a manifestation of the lengths that we'll go to to send that message. Mm. Um, you know, this might be a backdoor to Australia. The people smugglers will, you know, be in business. And mm. uh, the, the lengths that we have gone to are clearly inhumane we've known it for years and it is just exhausting and astonishing mm. and deeply distressing okay one last thing this policy has been a a stain on our country for a number of years now but um, maria can you tell us about what other legacy this policy could potentially have further from our own shores well, in the last, um, I'd say probably a few years, but particularly in the last few months, a number of European countries are looking to Australia to emulate the offshore processing centres. Now, Europe is a different scenario because it has the European Convention on Human Rights that I alluded to before and an enforcement mechanism called the European Court of Human Rights. So it does have that regional human rights protection that Australia does not have, and that would hamper any direct... Um, parallel to Manus and Nauru in the European context. However, Europe is trying to sort of emulate parts of that by, for example, Italy is trying to pay Libya to um, effectively get the Libyan Navy to intercept asylum seeker vessels that, that leave Libya and then they are taken back to Libya and processed there. 
Um, I believe that once the asylum seekers and migrants get into EU waters, then they are taken then to Italy and processed on land. And my understanding is that they're not screened at sea, which is something that Australia does controversially. But um, I think more generally, yes, there are um, moves to replicate the, I guess, the concept of deterring people um, that are coming by sea. It's just a, a different... They're using slightly different mechanisms, but it's the same approach. Yeah. So what should we be doing about this? What well, are you doing about it? Well, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to Even Italy. Better. Yes, I'm going to Italy next week, um, together with my colleague Azada Dastiaro, to speak to Italian scholars and policymakers about this, and we're going to issue a position paper. And we're trying to educate uh, some of the European policymakers about the lessons to be taken from our experience. And my takeaway message would be, firstly, it is ethically unacceptable to use a cohort of asylum seekers to act as a deterrent. It's called a utilitarian approach where you say, well, we're going to use these human beings to send a message to the international um, refugee community, if you like, that they can't come to Australia. So ethically, that's unacceptable. And then secondly, legally, it's really complex. We've just spoken about that, that the PNG Supreme Court said that the refugees are Australia's responsibility. Australia say no, it is not. Then we have the problem that uh, now the UN Human Rights Committee said it is clearly Australia's responsibility, and I agree with that. So there are all these different perspectives about whose responsibility these refugees are, and that really creates problems for actually providing them a durable solution. So that's my take-home message that I'll be speaking to European policymakers about is that this is legally complex and ethically unacceptable. All right. Well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And it's, no, it's really important that we don't um, allow this um, stain on our country to be exported overseas and become mm. the norm for how the world treats asylum mm. seekers. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Um, on that note, we're going to attempt to pivot to something more fun, um, which is where we name our human rights hero and villain of the week. Um, Tanya, I'm going to start with you. Well, I'm not going to be moving to anything more fun. I'm staying. I'm staying on the topic of Manus Island here. Uh, my human rights hero is Beirut Bouchani, a, a journalist who has been held on Manus Island for more than four years. Uh, he has used his skills to document the reality of people's experiences on Manus Island. So he's used social media, he's written some powerful articles, and he's also um, filmed a documentary on his mobile phone. So, so through the tragedy of his own personal circumstances, he has brought us very important stories about the damage which arises when human rights are sidelined to achieve political goals. Great. And my human rights hero, I have one from the Labor Party and one from the Liberal Party. My Labor Party hero is Sam Dastiari. Uh, his dignity in the face of the disgusting uh, racial hatred um, by the 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 people called, I think, the... The National the Front. National, well, Rise the, up a... Mm. But, but, yeah, but well, basically... So it out. Yeah. <laughs> By some bunch I'll of racists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, the racist in the hotel when he was doing the most Aussie thing you can do, and that is buying a beer at, at a pub, he was um, 
grossly um, treated by these, um, I would say, neo-Nazis. And um, I think his dignified response um, was, was very commendable. And I loved, I loved his statement you're embarrassing yourselves. Mm. That was very understated. And also that. I think that, yes, the next day um, on one of the morning shows, he said, look, they didn't even buy a, a, a drink. They didn't even buy a beer. How un-Australian is it <laughs> to go to a pub and not, not buy uh, a beer? Not bad. No. <laughs> and um, my Liberal Party hero is, um, particularly for his comments this week, is Attorney General George Brandis in relation to the same-sex marriage survey and, of course, the legislation that we just spoke about uh, at the start of this podcast in response to some of the allegations, I guess, that, as I said, the homophobic bakers should be able to discriminate against same-sex couples. Attorney General Brand has said, if it is morally and legally unacceptable, discriminate against one gay person, and by the way, that is so under anti-discrimination legislation, then it is equally as abhorrent to discriminate against a gay couple, two gay people. And so I thought that was a really um, good legal point and also a really good moral point to make. And my um, my human rights villains um, are aligned perhaps with um, uh, the Attorney General's side of politics, but they're those who take a very different view. Uh, so a few names spring to mind, but we all know who they are. They're those who support the homophobic bakers who I'd like to believe don't exist. I don't think they do. (laughs) So they're the ones who remind me of children that that bully other children into playing an unfair game in which they will inevitably get hurt but play by the rules anyway and then when those other children actually win the game the bullies try to change the rules. Mm. Uh, It reminds me of stories I've heard from my kids over the years and I just think they need to grow up and accept the result. Yeah, I do want to say I do do want to note George Brandis's comment this morning that it looks like he wants to protect homophobic um, civil marriage celebrants, though. Right. So yes. <laughs> um, my human rights villain is Robert Mugabe. Um, mm. If anyone's been following the news, the big the big story from outside of Australia over the last twenty four hours has been what appears to be a coup in Zimbabwe, where. Mugabe and his wife are under a house arrest, so we could feel sorry for Robert, but of course we don't. Mm. Um, he's my hero. He's my villain, though, specifically because this is a country that he has brought to its knees over a 30-year period. Mm. Um, what's happened in recent weeks is that he has uh, begun a purge, um, particularly of his most um, senior potential successor to him, Emerson mm. Mnangagwa. And uh, that was for the purpose of basically parachuting his wife, Grace, into Mm, uh, Gucci mm. Grace. Uh, She's got quite a reputation into pole position to succeed him. Mm. And someone's got to. He's almost 94, isn't he? Yeah, although I think his mother lived to be over 100. So it seems like he's he's, he's got incredible staying power. But this is a man who's economically destroyed the country, who's driven out, um, you know, white farmers who in the early years of his rule perpetrated a, a massacre of other ethnic groups mm. um, in, in part of the country. Um, he has wrought so much harm to that country. He was always going to go at some point. Uh, we should never forget what a terrible leader Robert Mugabe has been. Mm. And, of course, he created a lot of refugees, indeed. going back to the theme of our podcast. Mm, indeed. Well played. 
All right, so now we finish off with uh, Did You See That? where we all briefly mentioned one thing that caught our eye, human rights or otherwise. Mine is Richard Spencer and others who um, have lost their Twitter verified status under new guidelines. And uh, basically this is about those who uh, promote violence or otherwise engage in vilification. And I think this is important because Twitter obviously... um, is social media, but it's not really under the same regulatory regime as mainstream media. And I think it's important that Twitter, along with other media outlets, particularly because of its prevalence and its influence, is under similar regulations that mainstream media um, is under. And of course, mm-hmm. I haven't been subject to any sort of hate on Twitter, but I know a lot of people who have, um, and it's very distressing for them. I think it also denigrates our um, political and other discourse. So I think it's really important. I applaud Twitter for that. Great. Mm. All right. Finally, did you see uh, that paragraph uh, 23B of the proposed marriage amendment (laughs) act when I was going through this morning uh, extends the prohibition on a brother and a sister marrying each other to, uh, to all siblings? Wow. Uh, okay. Which I found really interesting because obviously incest is something that's greatly frowned upon in our society, mm. but I thought that the legal reason for preventing incest was uh, because of genetic problems that can occur if uh, a brother and a sister have a child. And of course, we know that gay couples have children all the time, but uh, usually with genetic material from only one of the members of the uh, partnership or they might adopt. Um, so I'm not quite sure why they've extended mm. the incest prohibition to two sisters and two brothers. I thought it was quite interesting. I had a look at the explanatory memorandum. There wasn't much there. Uh, mm. I think they just decided to really completely same-sex the whole act. Mm. Wow. And just bung it in there. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. So, funny little tidbit. All right, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening to another episode of Have You Got That Right? Uh, if you enjoyed it, please be sure to uh, rate the podcast and make leave a comment in your podcast listening app as it helps others to find it and also share it through your networks. Today's podcast was edited by Theo Lira. Mm-hmm.